this is uh, your first time here or you hadn't been here in a while, we're in the middle of walking through the Gospel of Mark together on Sunday morning. Uh, this morning we've made our way to Mark chapter 2 and we'll cover verses 1 through 12 together. So we're going to j- jump into a story where Jesus heals a paralytic man. Now, just a real introductory word for you to be thinking about. This is a very familiar story, okay? And the tendency that we have with very familiar things is we get cold to them and we think we know everything about them. But this is the living Word of God. This is the sharp, living Word of God. This is words from His mouth. And these words are profitable for us. They can affect our life. They can, God Himself, the living God, can speak to us from this text. And we can trust Him to do that. So my warning to you this morning would be not to become so familiar with parts of the Scriptures that you're unable to hear the Holy Spirit unpack His Word to you. So we're about to dive into this text together. So here's, here's what I would ask you to do before we pray. We're going to read this passage and then we're going to pray together. But just if you would make an agreement with me before we jump in this morning, that you would just let the Word of God do what, where, wherever God presses on you from this text, not from me, okay, but wherever the Word of God presses on you from this text, that you would just agree to respond and however He, he speaks to you. And I I believe that we can gather together in the name of Jesus and trust God to speak to us over and over and over again from his word. So we're going to read Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 together, and then we'll pray. Let's read that. This is the word of God. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they, had, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now the, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to him, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray together. Father, we gather together this morning again in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we come to you as your people who are called by your name. And our prayer, God, Every time we gather, our prayer, God, is that you would speak to us and that you would meet with us, Lord. And that's what we ask for today. We ask, God, that you would be the living God among us and that you would speak to us, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would use your word, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would drive your word into our hearts. And God, we ask that you would do your work in this room. We ask, Lord, that you would disturb those who need to be disturbed this morning and comfort those who need to be comforted this morning, Lord that you would stir up the idol, Lord, among us, God, and that you would encourage the saints. And we pray, God, that you would exalt your son, Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that as we see our Savior, as we see things about him, Lord, that you would cause us to love Jesus more and more. And 
we pray, God, that you would make us like him and help us to worship him, Lord. Open our eyes today, God. We ask for your help. I ask for your help, Lord, and your spirit's power to open this book and proclaim it in a way that brings you glory. And I ask for your help, Lord, for us as a church, that we would hear what your Holy Spirit says to us, God, from your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let me get oriented in this text just real quick, and then we'll jump into verse 1. This passage today begins a new section in the Gospel of Mark. All right, chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to walk into a section of conflict. Uh, There's five of them in chapters 2 and 3 of Mark's Gospel. This is the first conflict in a section of conflict. Now, what this means is the more and more that the authority of Jesus is revealed through his teachings and through his works, the more and more Jesus was hated by his enemies and those who opposed him. So this is a section of conflict. This is the first of five. Again, what we're going to bump into today, this first conflict is we're going to get introduced to this idea. This is the central conflict between Jesus and his enemies. It's a word called blasphemy. Okay. This would, end up, this would end up being the reason why Jesus' enemies would murder him on the cross. Uh, it all hangs around this word blasphemy. We're going to unpack this today. So let's start with verse 1 and 2 together. It says this. Let's read this again. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. All right. If you remember at the end of chapter one last week, there was a leper that came to Jesus and this leper got healed at the end of chapter one. And the thing that Jesus told this leper after this leper was healed, he said, be silent. Don't tell anybody about this. Right. If you remember that story, you remember that the leper did not obey Jesus. He began to tell everybody what Jesus had done and the effect of the leper's disobedience. It caused Jesus to be pushed out into the desolate places. It was so crowded in Capernaum that they literally drove him out into the desolate places. Now we pick the story back up. Some time has passed. We don't know exactly how much, but some time has passed. Jesus has been out in the desolate places, but now he's back in Capernaum. Okay. To uh, Capernaum. This is where Jesus turned this city uh, upside down earlier in chapter one. But now we see him back. Uh, Just a reminder, this is a real introductory reminder, that Capernaum became the home base of Jesus' Galilean ministry after he was rejected at Nazareth. He basically moved his hometown from Nazareth to Capernaum, and this would become his home base. Verse 1 mentions Jesus' house. I don't know if you caught that. Uh, Most scholars believe that this was the house of Simon Peter, the apostle Peter, that Jesus would stay at. This would be his house. Jesus, uh, Peter would let him stay there. This would become Jesus's home base for his ministry. All right. Jesus is back in town. And our text today says that many began to gather at this house. Many began to gather there. This is a reference again to the crowds. And we're going to take a little quick deviation and we'll come back to our text in a moment. If you are a student of the Gospels and you read the Gospels, and when I say that, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel accounts. If you are a student of the Gospels, it doesn't take long to notice that there are three categories of people that emerge in the Gospels. Okay, Every person that's ever been exposed to Jesus, that hears about Him, falls into one of these three categories. 
These categories are the disciples, the crowds, and the opposition. Okay, Three categories of people. Every person falls into one of these three. Let's talk about these categories real quick. The category of disciple. This describes a group of people who had denied themselves and followed Jesus. The disciples, they're the ones who had a positive response to Jesus and his message. Okay, these are the disciples. And then you have the opposition. These are the people who had a negative response to Jesus and his message. They flat out rejected Jesus and his message and they hated it. They even violently opposed Jesus and his message. But there is a third category of people. We're going to refer to it as the crowds. And the majority of people in the Gospels actually fall into this third category, the crowds. All right. And for all intents and purposes today, I want to refer to this group of people, the crowds, as the mushy middle. Okay. Their response to Jesus and his message was not a positive response of faith and repentance. But their response to Jesus and his message was not an outright rejection and hatred to Jesus. They're the mushy middle. These are the crowds. We've already been introduced to the crowds earlier in chapter one of Mark's gospel. Okay, this group of people is marked by enthusiasm for Jesus, but their enthusiasm for Jesus is fickle and shallow. These are the crowds. Okay, this group of people saw Jesus for his gifts and his miracles. But they did not respond to his message of repentance. And this is the exact problem that we saw with the crowds at Capernaum earlier in chapter one. All right. So I want to hit something right off the bat. Now, this type of thing usually waits to the end, but I want to hit it just right off the bat. Okay. Which group do you describe yourself to be in? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you an opponent, an enemy of Christ? Are you in the crowds, the mushy middle? All right. Think about this. Maybe this word, the crowds, describes some of you here. And here's what I mean by that. You like Jesus. You're not against Jesus. You're for Jesus. You like him. You desire Jesus's help. You would like it if Jesus would help you. Okay. This may describe you. Maybe you desire to Jesus that Jesus would help your felt needs. And here's what I mean. Maybe your heart says something like this. Help me. Come help me cope with life, Jesus. Or maybe you would say something like, come help me be healthy, Jesus, or wealthy, Jesus, or happy, Jesus. Come help me, Jesus. These are desires that portray the crowds that pack in and follow Christ. They pack in around him. Now, if you do not hear me say anything else today, I want you to mark this in your mind. Okay. If you do not hear me say anything else, being in the crowds that follow Jesus does not make you a disciple of Jesus. Just because you were in the crowds that follow Jesus does not mean that you were saved. Okay. Only disciples of Jesus are saved because only disciples repent of their sins and trust the Savior. Only disciples. Repentance is the furthest thing in the mind of these crowds. They're there for a miracle. They're there for the blessing. They do not respond to Jesus's message of repentance and faith. It seems like Jesus in the Gospels, if you've ever read them, it seems like he's often warning these massive amounts of people, the crowds. He's often warning them to count the cost of discipleship. 
For example, if you were to read the Gospels, you may hear Jesus say something like this. You're here because you got healed. You're here because you ate the bread and you're full. But you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So I ask you this morning, have you counted the cost? Is your interest in Jesus superficial? Is Jesus more than a habit in your life? Is he more than your family's religion? Is he more than an accessory to your worldview? Is he more than your sugar daddy in heaven? Is he more than that to you? Have you taken up your cross and followed the Lord Jesus Christ? Notice in verse in verse two of our text today, notice how Jesus deals with this group of people known as the crowds. These crowds gather around him. And what does our Savior do in verse two? What does he do? We are told from this text that he preaches the word to them. Massive amounts of people pack around him and our Savior opens up his mouth and begins to declare a message. Mark doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus says to him. But if you back up, he, he doesn't tell us that because he's already told us in Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15. We've said this many times, that section, those two verses sit like a banner over Jesus's entire Galilean ministry. OK, they're like a title of what he announced to this region. So we don't know exactly what Jesus said, but this sentence would summarize what Jesus would have announced to this crowd that day. Would have sounded something like this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Crowds began to pack around him and he what did he do? He preached the gospel to them. OK, this was his message to the crowds. This message was about an arriving king. The message that Jesus preached to the crowds was about a coming, arriving king. And this king had come to save sinners. That's what he announced. And this king demanded that to receive this salvation, you must repent and believe in this glorious gospel. The only way into the kingdom of God is to respond to this message of repentance and faith in Jesus. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that that's the only way in. This is why you constantly see him in the Gospels over and over and over again. He's preaching to massive amounts of humanity and he's announcing that he's the Christ and he's the only way to salvation. And he calls them to repentance and faith in himself. Jesus knows that this is the only way. So I want to ask you a very personal question. OK, don't think about anybody sitting beside you. Just think about you. What have you done with this sentence in your life? What have you done with this sentence? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What have you done with that? This is the Savior's demand. This is his announcement. How have you responded? Let's jump into verse three and four. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which this paralytic lay. So here we're introduced in this story to a unique group of four individuals, four men. We don't know their names, but they are very unique in the gospel account. And this is an awesome part of this story. Okay. These men were determined to bring their loved one to Jesus. Absolutely determined. However, 
they hit a problem. They get there that day to this house in Capernaum. They couldn't get in. They couldn't even get to the door to get this paralytic to Jesus. Okay? <laughs> but these men were willing to do whatever it takes. And this is the part of the story where you can become way too familiar with this. That you can just read over it. The Bible says that they busted through a roof. The Bible says that these men busted through a roof just to get this paralytic man to the, to the feet of Jesus Christ. They did the unthinkable. Houses during this time had flat roofs with a very small slope. Okay? Uh, many people would use these flat roofs as a place to pray, a place to eat, and even a place to sleep if you had too many guests. There were stairs on the outside of the house where you could get up to these flat roofs. Okay? And the flat roofs, here's how they did it. They had girder beams laying across the roof and then smaller sticks laying across the girder beams. And then there would be a layer of thatch. And then on top of that, there would be a layer of mud caked in to, make it, to, make, to seal it from water. And then on the very top, there were clay tiles that stood on the very top of this roof. And, and my point is, this was not an easy task. They had to dig through this roof. They had to dig through it to get this man to Jesus. So, this day at this house in Capernaum, in the middle of Jesus announcing this message, teaching this group of people, someone began to break through the ceiling. Okay? Shovels started to come through the roof. Now, you might have saw some weird things happen in a church gathering. I've never seen anything like this. I'm pretty sure you haven't either. They started busting through the roof. Can you imagine this scene? As dirt begins to fall on their heads. Can you imagine this? All of a sudden a hole opens up. Little bitty hole. Maybe somebody's head peeks through. And then all of a sudden this hole gets a lot bigger. Okay? Maybe four by six. Maybe three by six. Something like that. This hole gets a lot bigger. Maybe somebody else's head pokes through. They said, yeah, I think we can get him through that. And then all of a sudden this paralytic on this stretcher begins to be lowered down with ropes. This is incredible. This is unbelievable determination that these men, and then all of a sudden, here he is. The next verse would tell us that these four men were men of faith. These are men of faith. And these men are great examples to us as Christians because we, like them, we have a tremendous obligation to bring needy humanity into the presence of Jesus. We have a tremendous obligation to do whatever it takes to bring needy humanity into the presence of the Savior. This is how these men can encourage us. And they're examples for us. I want to tell you this. Notice how they overcame difficulties. Notice how these men overcame difficulties. This would have been inconvenient for them. The methods would have been inconvenient and unconventional. And they would have even defied social customs. Okay? They would have done things that many would have thought would have been improper. And there are many things about human customs that change. Okay? But this is just kind of one of the ground rules that in any custom, anywhere on the planet, you just don't bust through someone's roof. And they defied these customs. They did it anyway. They were desperate men to do whatever it takes to see Jesus transform a life. Okay? So I want to flip this on us real quick. How many of us, if we were brutally honest would have stopped at the door that day. If you would have been in this group 
And you would have found out that the crowds would not let this paralytic man to Jesus. Would you have went home? Or would you have stood in the back of the crowd until the crowds thinned out? What would you have done? And I want to warn you about something called that I call sleepy sovereignty. Okay? You need to be aware of this is a perversion and a distortion to the teaching of the sovereignty of God. It's called sleepy sovereignty. And here's what I mean. Barriers and closed doors do not always mean that it's not God's will for you to go over the barrier and right through the closed door. Okay? It does not always mean that. Be careful of the type of theology, this type of theology that guides your decision making. And here's what I mean. Be careful that day that you wouldn't have sat down when the Holy Spirit of God was telling you to get up and go. Be very careful. We need more risk takers like these men. I want to be like these men. And I know that if you love Jesus, you want to be like these men. We need more men and women of faith in this church filled with confidence in Jesus. So I have a question for you. Where are the Caleb's among us? The men 80 something years old who look at God and say, give me this mountain. Where are they at? Where are the men and women like Caleb at among us? Where are the ones like the priest who step into the rushing Jordan River and see the waters go straight out from under their feet? Where are they at? Where are the men and women of faith among us? Where are the violent men among us that take the kingdom of God by force? That's Matthew 11. And where are the men and women among us like these four men? that bust through a roof, that do whatever it takes to see Jesus transform a life. And our prayer ought to be that the Lord would raise up many, many men and women of faith like this. And He's already doing that. But our prayer should be that He would do this more and more. And we could pray something like this. Lord, make us stretcher bearers to this world filled with confidence in Jesus Christ the Savior. And Jesus could have chastised this group for interrupting his teaching, but he doesn't. And here you have this paralyzed man and he's on the floor and he's staring into the eyes of the Savior. And in that moment, Jesus sees something. Verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And here's where we get to the question mark in this text. The mission of these four men had been accomplished. Yet the first word out of Jesus' mouth toward this paralytic is a word of forgiveness, not a word of healing. The first word that he speaks is a word of forgiveness, not a word of healing. Now, this is very odd. This is a very odd thing recorded for us in this text. I want you to imagine that you were there and you were looking on in this dramatic scene and this paralytic was laid down. And the onlookers would have been disappointed or puzzled or maybe even offended. Okay, Perhaps they thought that Jesus misunderstood why, why this paralytic was there. And maybe they were thinking, what's this talk about forgiveness? This man needs healing. Imagine you were there and you were seeing these things happen. But this is not an act of coldness from our Savior. This is not an act of cruelty by Jesus. In fact, the first word that Jesus says to this paralytic is the word son. That's a personal term of affection and love. This is an act of love by Jesus Christ, what he's about to do. 
Here is the great question for us today from this text. Here it is. Why did Jesus speak to the conscience before he spoke to the body? Why did he do that? Why did our Savior do this? And as you understand this this question and answer this question, you understand this passage and you understand something about our glorious Savior. Why did he speak to the conscience before he spoke to the body? Jesus is actually doing something very intentional and very important in this text. And this is why Mark records this event for us. There's something here for us. Jesus looks past the paralysis of this man's body and sees the paralysis of this man's soul. He sees a deeper need than earthly paralysis. Jesus is not unconcerned about physical suffering, but he does not believe that this is his greatest need. So by addressing sin first and not sickness, Jesus shows us our greatest need. He says sin is our greatest need, not sickness. Deliverance from sin, not healing from sickness. Now, it is very popular today. Very popular. To hear people preach that Jesus came for secondary reasons. For temporary earthly blessings. Like health, wealth, happiness. But that's to get the cart before the horse. And that's to seek the gifts above the giver. And this is a perversion, idolatrous perversion. Okay? One of the most popular forms of this is something called the prosperity gospel. This is a complete flip to what Jesus does. They do the exact opposite. Very popular today. But mark this down from this text. The main problem in your life is never, ever, 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 ever physical. It's always, every time, without exception, spiritual. That's your main problem at every single moment on this planet. Think of the danger of addressing the secondary and ignoring the primary. Think of the danger of addressing the fruit and ignoring the root. Think of the danger of addressing The symptoms and ignoring the source. Think of how dangerous that is. I'll give you an example. All right. I'm a father of a two-year-old son. That plays pretty rough at times. And let's just say that Ethan is on a swing set in our backyard. And we don't have one, so maybe he's at Ryan's house. All right. So he's playing on a swing set. All of a sudden, I hear a scream and a starting to cry. And my son has fallen off Ryan's swing set and he has scraped his arm. Okay. And he's hurt. And he stands up, and I'm in the backyard watching him, and he's walking across the backyard. He wants me to hold me, Daddy, hold me. Okay? My arm's scraped. Got a bobo. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this rattlesnake in Brian's backyard just pops Ethan on the side of the leg. And Ethan gets to me. Do you know how unloving it is and irresponsible it is for me to take Ethan inside and begin to nurse his scrape on his arm? You understand that? For me to doctor up that little scrape on his arm, what should I be doing? I should be driving 150 miles an hour to the nearest hospital and addressing his greatest need. He has a more urgent need in that moment than a scrape on his arm. You understand that? In the same way, Jesus, when he speaks this word of forgiveness... He's going to the root of this man's problem. The most urgent need that this man has is forgiveness of sin. 
The fact is this, apart from Christ, we are all spiritual paralytics, full of sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20 There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We are full of sin. The greatest need for any human being is to be forgiven of sin. Unforgiven sin is a terrifying thing. I hope you would agree with that this morning. Unforgiven sin is terrifying. And the Bible is very clear about this. We're all sinners, but hell is full of people whose sin is unforgiven. This is a terrifying thing with eternal consequences. So Jesus meets the greatest need first and speaks this word of forgiveness. Son, your sins are forgiven. Note how much mercy is wrapped up in this phrase. Son, your sins are forgiven. See the mercy of Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks of a final judgment on the last day. And what Jesus does in this verse, at that final judgment, every human being will stand before God the judge and they'll be on trial for their sins. And what Jesus does when he announces this forgiveness is he takes this verdict from the final day and he brings it into the present. And the verdict of the final day is pronounced over this man in the present tense. And he has the forgiveness of God secured. This is the mercy of Jesus. Later in the New Testament, this will be called justification. This paralytic received the pardon of the final day through faith in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus. And notice how complete this word of forgiveness is. That text does not say your sin is forgiven in the singular. He told the man, your sins are forgiven in the plural. Do you understand the difference? Every single sin that this man had ever committed or would commit, past, present, and future, he wiped them all out in one sentence. Son, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine the mercy? The forgiveness of sins instantly put away. And this guilty man would never again, ever in his life, have to answer for the to the judge for his sins. This is the mercy of God. Forgiveness of sin does not grip our hearts like it should. Because we live in a culture that expects God to forgive. They think that's God's job. Okay? You live in a culture that pushes a version of God that is soft. He's loving, he's soft, and he minimizes sin instead of the holy, holy, holy one of the word of God. All right? This is why forgiveness does not grip us because we expect it, because we have a wrong vision of who God is. But that's actually a huge mistake to think of forgiveness as, as God's job and no big deal. It's a huge mistake. Forgiveness of sin is very difficult. And many assume that God can just forgive sin on any terms at any time. And that is not true. The Bible does not teach that. God cannot just forgive you because you're sorry. Maybe some of you have been taught that in your life and that's wrong. That you just tell God how sorry you are for your sins. And God is so loving and so merciful that He'll forgive you. That is a lie. That is not true. That is a lie. Listen to this. God cannot forgive sin on any terms. It's not that easy. A just judge cannot look at a criminal and just let him go. Or he's not a just judge. 
The criminal has to pay the penalty. No matter how sorry the criminal is, he has to pay the penalty. Someone always has to pay the penalty. You understand the difference, right? Forgiveness of the Bible is always based on substitution. God does not forgive you based on how sorry you are for your sins. He forgives you based on the fact that someone else was punished in your place. Every time it's based on substitution. Listen to Hebrews 9.22. The Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Not an ounce of forgiveness unless the blood is shed. This is the teaching of the Bible. What does that mean? That means you can tell God how sorry you are until you're 120 years old. But if the blood's not shed, if the penalty's not paid for your sin, there's no forgiveness. There's no forgiveness. Do you see how it's not that easy? The forgiveness that Jesus announces is a forgiveness that's rooted in Jesus' work on the cross that he's about to accomplish. Jesus could only say to this paralytic man, the wrath of God will not fall on you because it's going to fall on me in your place. I'm your substitute. I'm the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is Jesus' message. Isaiah 53, a famous passage, gives us a vivid description of substitution. Listen to this. Verse 6 in Isaiah 53 tells us that as Jesus went to the cross to die for you, God did something to him. Listen to what God did to Jesus. Right before he went on the cross, it says this. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He became your substitute. Jesus became your sin bearer. Your sin was laid on him, was placed on him. And then many of you know what happens next. What happens next after your sins are placed on Jesus? Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He was your sin bearer and then he became your wrath bearer. He took the punishment that was going to fall on you in your place. And on this basis, in this basis alone, God offers forgiveness to every person who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus. He knows, Jesus knows that if he, if he proclaims forgiveness to this man, he's going to have to die. He knows that because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So with, the, with this story, with this passage, we see Jesus just drawing one step closer to his cross, to his death. And not everyone liked what they heard Jesus say that day. Listen to verse 6 and 7. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. And they said, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here again we meet the scribes. We've already met them once in, in Mark. In Luke's account of this same story, in Luke chapter 5, this, this story is recorded in Matthew and Luke. Luke records it in Luke chapter 5, and we find out in Luke's account that these religious leaders came from every village in Galilee and Judea, and Judea and even from Jerusalem. That was like the theological headquarters. Okay, So this day in this house, there was like a ruthless theological committee that came in, the heavyweights of Jesus' day, and they came in and they were ready to pin into the wall. Okay, And they heard what He said about forgiveness of sins. And they knew the Scriptures and a huge red light began to go off in their mind. Why? Because they knew from the Scriptures that God alone can forgive sin. 
And yet Jesus just opened his mouth and forgave this man's sin. So this, these ruthless theologians are sitting there. Red light goes off in their mind because Jesus forgave sin. And they're thinking, hold up, only God can forgive sin. I love this. Why can only God forgive sin? Have you ever thought about that? I'll give you an example. You can only forgive sin if sin is against you. Okay? Third party, you can't forgive. So let's give an example here. We got Jay Crouch and Beth Ainsworth and Hunter Ainsworth. I'll give you an example. You can only forgive sin if sin is against you. So let's say at the Clinton Bible study one week, things get a little heated, okay? And out of nowhere, I know this is hypothetical, right? Out of nowhere, Hunter just walks right across the room and just punches Jake just right in the face. And I mean blindsides him just out of nowhere, right? And Jake, you know, takes it like a champ on the ground for a few minutes and tries to recover, all right? And then Hunter starts feeling bad about himself a couple of minutes later. Uh, and Beth runs across the room and says, It's okay, Hunter. It's okay, Hunter. I forgive you. What's Jake thinking in that moment? It's like, hold up. He didn't hit you. He hit me. And this is a silly example that you cannot forgive sin unless it's against you. You understand that? And this is why... These men were thinking in their heads, only God can forgive sin. Why can only God forgive sin? It's because sin is ultimately only against God. Sin is first and foremost a vertical offense to God, your creator and king. Listen to Psalm 51 verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. You see that? Sin is an offense to God. Therefore, only God can forgive sin. Now, Old Testament prophets, they certainly announce forgiveness. Listen to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. You see what happened there? These prophets announced forgiveness in God's name, but not directly. But Jesus did it directly. Jesus looked at them and he didn't say the Lord put away your sin. He said your sins are forgiven. It was direct. And that was a huge red flag in their minds. And the scribes understood this as Jesus' claim to deity. By forgiving sin directly, Jesus was claiming to be God himself. And they charge Jesus with blasphemy. And this is a term that's used to describe an insult to God. And it's punishable by death in the Old Testament. You could just write this verse down. Leviticus 24, 16. Blasphemy carried a death sentence in the Old Testament. And this was the heart of the conflict between Jesus and his opponents. This charge of blasphemy. They hated the fact that this they thought this man claimed to be God. They hated this fact and they charged him with blasphemy and eventually they would murder Jesus. Okay? If someone ever asks you, why did they kill him? This is why they killed him because he claimed to be God. And they hated it. So I want you to think about these men. Notice that their theology was not 100% wrong. They were right. Only God can forgive sin. 
but their application was wrong. You understand that? They refer to Jesus in verse 7 as this man. This man. This is a derogatory term. Okay? They were right that only for God could forgive sin, but they were wrong in who they saw Jesus to be. They saw Jesus to be this man, and they were blind to the fact that He was not this man. He was the God-man. And this whole passage, Jesus displays His deity. Okay? And this whole thing, and they were blind to it. It's somewhat surprising today, maybe you've heard this, of how many people will actually say, the Bible never says that Jesus is God. Isn't that surprising how many people would say that? Even unbelieving Jewish leaders in this text heard him speak, and their thought was, this man saying he's God, he's a blasphemer. Isn't that surprising how people could come away with that? Jesus claims deity for himself, he claims to be God in the flesh. And this issue is left very clear for us. He is either a blasphemer or he is God in the flesh. There is no mushy middle. He's one or the other. Now our culture is perfectly willing to claim Jesus as a good teacher and a good man. But Jesus actually left, never left that option open to us. He is either a blasphemer or God in the flesh. No middle ground. Listen to the C.S. Lewis quote. I love this quote. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Close quote. C.S. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be a liar on the level of the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall down at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. And he did not intend to. C.S. Lewis brought the heat on that one. I'll just say amen to that. Verse 8 and 9. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you ask these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. Alright, this, this is admittedly a hard verse to interpret. Some people have a hard time pinning down what Jesus is actually saying here. And here's what I think that we can come to. Both of these statements are equally easy to say. In other words, if I ask you to read one sentence and read the other, you can say both of the sentences with relative ease. You can say the words and they're easy. Both of these things are supernatural. Okay? But the difference is, is one can be verified easier than the other. The word of healing is more easily verified than the word of forgiveness. And this makes the word of healing the easier thing to say. You understand that? Because it can be verified. You can say, stand, rise, and walk. And if he doesn't stand, rise, and walk, boom, verified. 
But the forgiveness of sins is harder to verify. Therefore, the healing is the easier work. Jesus is about to do the easier thing to prove that he has the authority to do the harder thing. With these two statements, Jesus starts showing his cards. He starts tipping his hand for what he's about to do. If you're reading this and you're thinking he's about to do it, think if you're the scribes there and they're thinking, oh, he's about to heal this man. He's about to heal this man. Luke 5 verse 17 says the power of the Lord was present with Jesus in this room to heal. Think about the atmosphere like electricity, a tense atmosphere as his enemies began to get nervous. And all the people there are thinking, is he about to do it? Is he about to heal him? And then in verse 10, he says this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. So Jesus was about to verify that he had authority to forgive sins. This is the main point of this passage. That Jesus is demonstrating his authority to forgive sins. It would be a terrible thing for you to be exposed to a section of scripture or to a sermon on a, on a text. And for you to not know the main point. For you to take off some tertiary, secondary point. The main point of this text Jesus is showing us that he has the authority to forgive sins. The main point of the passage is not healing or first century roof construction or the examples of the ones who carried the paralytic then or even the conflict with the scribes. The main point of the passage is that Jesus has authority to forgive sins and he's about to give a demonstration of his authority. Listen to verses 11 and 12. Jesus said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So I want you to try to picture yourself there. A man was let in on a stretcher, stands up and carries the stretcher out the back door right in front of your eyes. This is a word of authority, astounding authority. And it leaves this crowd amazed at what they have seen. The word of Jesus is so powerful that it restores dead limbs to life. It's a creative act of God. He displays his power over his creation. But it also shows the compassion of Jesus. This healing dramatically changed this man's earthly life. Relieved much physical suffering. And to say the least, to say the very least, this was a good day for this man. Any day that you get let down on a stretcher in a room and you carry that stretcher out of the back of the room is a pretty good day. This is a pretty good day for this man. But on a serious note, can you picture yourself there? Can you picture yourself when this man, he hasn't walked possibly for years and all of a sudden he's standing up. Can you imagine the joy that begins to bust out of this man's heart? His whole world was turned upside down with one sentence from the Savior. One sentence. This healing has only one conclusion. What is it? If he can do that, then that man's sins are forgiven. And that's exactly Jesus' point in demonstrating his authority. This man carried something home far more important than his stretcher that day. The limbs that Jesus restored would atrophy one day, right? 
And these limbs would one day, in death, they would become dust. These limbs that Jesus restored. But that man carried something else home that day. It was called eternal life. He got cleansed of all of his sins. And he carried the stretcher home with eternal life from God. When Jesus says to the healed man, rise and walk. This is a picture of the new birth. It's a visual picture which later in the New Testament will be called the gift of the Holy Spirit. The divine enablement of God to live in newness of life. Rise and walk. This is a picture for us. This is what God does for us. There would have been a huge temptation on that day for this paralytic man to suffer from what I call the if-only disease. Think about this. The if-only disease. This man's condition was very bad. Most likely he was a quadriplegic man. Completely dependent on other people to feed him, to clean him, to move him, to do everything for him. His suffering was real. Can you imagine his temptation to the if only disease? If only I could walk again, then I'd be happy. I'd never complain. I'd be set for life. If only I could walk again. The if only disease is a mirage. It's a deception because the roots of sinful discontentment run deep into our hearts as fallen human beings. And the fact of the matter is, there is simply no way that the euphoria of physical healing would have lasted forever for this man. It would not have lasted forever. So I ask you the question, what's your if only? What's your if only? The thing that you think will make everything else okay, if only. Think about this. Finish this sentence. If only Jesus would give me blank, then I'd be happy. What's your if only? If only Jesus would heal me of this sickness, then I'd be happy. If only Jesus would get me out of this financial hole, then I'd be happy. If only Jesus would restore that broken relationship, then I would be happy. If only Jesus would heal my loneliness and give me friends, then I'd be happy. If only Jesus would help me get rid of this boring or stressful job and pursue my dream, then I would be happy. If only Jesus would give me blank, you fill it in, then I would be happy. This is the if only disease. The thing that you think will make everything else okay is called your idol. Okay? The thing that you desire besides Christ that you think will make everything else okay is an idol. This is the if only disease. What's your if only? Can you imagine this man's temptation to that in that moment? In in the realness of his suffering. But imagine this paralyzed man who's been healed for over 2,000 years. He's been with Jesus in heaven. Imagine this same man could sit in front of you today and address you and talk some sense into us. What would he say? Can you imagine him saying this? Friend, that was the greatest day of my life. They let me down through the roof and I stared into the Savior's eyes. And then he opened his mouth and shocked us all. Jesus looked right at me and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. It caught me off guard. 
I immediately heard an argument break out in the corner and then Jesus looked back at me and he, and he told me, stand up, grab your stretcher and walk home. And in a moment, He healed me. With the knowledge I now have, friend, I realized that what I needed most on that day was a word of forgiveness. I needed eternal life infinitely more than I needed my body healed. There is no comparing a few years of earthly paralysis with losing your soul forever. Do you understand the eternal perspective? The great temptation for you to, is to always think that your greatest need is physical, earthly. But the eternal perspective says it is always spiritual. Your greatest need is always God Himself in Christ. Always. What would it look like for you to stop seeking the gifts and to start seeking the giver? What would that look like for you? What good is earthly healing or earthly blessing if you die in your sins and face the wrath of God forever? This is the central message of Christianity that every person who's ever drawn breath in this world needs forgiveness. And the only place that it can be found is in Jesus Christ. That's our central message. Our anthem to the world is 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So I have good news for you today. Jesus Christ is the living God. He is the living Savior. And what I mean by that is He still says, Son, your sins are forgiven. He still says it. He still pronounces this word of forgiveness to all who repent and trust in Jesus. And our prayer is that none among us would perish. None. Son, your sins are forgiven. Have you, have you ever heard this word deep in your soul? Most of the people in this room have. You have heard God pronounce you absolutely forgiven of every sin that you've ever committed. This means, Christian, this means that your greatest need has been met. It's done forever. Your name is carved in heaven in the book of life. Jesus said with His dying breath, this is John 19.30, that it is finished. The greatest blessing that you could ever receive is yours. You are cleansed. You're forgiven. No longer under the condemnation of God, you're saved. This is the work of Jesus towards every Christian. So I encourage you this morning, be joyful in your Savior. Be joyful in your Savior. Can you imagine that man that day walking out after he hadn't walked in years? Can you imagine him walking out that day with coldness toward Christ? His heart was bursting alive with praise to God for what He had done. And that's the same way that our hearts should be. That we have, we have been pronounced with a greater blessing than, than earthly healing. We have been forgiven forever and ever. And a million years after that, we will never answer for our sins. How joyful should you be, Christian? And my encouragement to you this morning is to rejoice in Jesus, your Savior. Let's read Romans chapter 8. We'll close with these four verses. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39. If your heart's been pricked this morning, I would just always say this, that you're welcome to find me and Ryan anytime after. Or if you came with another mature believer and you'd like to pray with them about anything, I know that they'd be more than willing to do that with you. Let's close with these words. Romans 8, 35 through 39. This is how final the work of Jesus is in your life. 
final, authoritative. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Once He does this work in our lives, nothing in, in all of creation can touch it. Listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise to His holy name. Praise to His name. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that You would disturb the ones that need to be disturbed today. Lord, we mentioned just the terror of unforgiven sin. And I do pray in Your name, Jesus, that You would exalt Yourself as the Savior among us. And I pray that You would bring many who were in the crowds and that You, Lord, would make them disciples. That You would grant the new birth. And I pray that they would repent of their sins and trust in You, Lord Jesus. God, for the believers here, for this church, for Your church, I pray that You would help us to glory in the Gospel. This glorious thing that You've done for us. This mighty work. You deserve eternal praise for what You've done, Lord. And I pray that You would have hearts that burn with passion for the name of Jesus. And I pray that You would stir it up in us by Your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Your name, Jesus. Amen.